Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, your host, Andy Runtmore. My guest this week is Marshall Brain. I think Marshall Brain's a bit of a super genius, a bit of a polymath. He was the uh, founder of How Stuff Works. He is now the author of the new book, The Doomsday Book, The Science Behind Humanity's Greatest Threats. Trigger warning, we do talk about addiction, but past that we talk about getting a million people to live on Mars, colonizing Mars, what that would look like in all aspects, geography, socio-political, economic. Uh, We talk about AI, talk about aliens. We talk about writing, we talk about neurotypical brains and ADHD. We talk about a whole host of things on this podcast, and I had a really, really good time with him. Hope you guys enjoy this. Here it is. Ah, there you are. <laughs> nice to meet you. I'm Andy. Hey, Andy. I'm Marshall. Hey, Marshall. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for uh, spending some time with me today. Sure. Uh, what time is it where you are? I'm at four o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, that's peachy for you then. Yes. And you're at nine? Nine p.m. here. Yeah, I've had a long day, but I'm, I am excited. <laughs> I'm excited to chat to you. I've been watching um, YouTube videos of you um, most of the evening as sort of, it's very hard to research a man like you because I, I don't know where to steer this conversation because you have so many hours worth of uh, mm. expertise to um, to share with us. <laughs> That's very kind I'm of you. I'm not even calling do we, I call it random ramblings. But <laughs> sure, whatever you want to call. <laughs> do we have the um, how stuff works chat? Do we have the chat about um, AI and uh, job replacement? <laughs> do we have the chat about us becoming, um, you know, the second? Uh, what, what's the uh, what is it you call it? The second, the intelligent- second intelligent species. Yeah. <laughs> or I guess we should talk about your book uh, that's coming out soon. <laughs> Uh, that's something else you're right <laughs> i don't know what to what where to start i guess we i guess we should begin with some sort of like light biographical uh features a, a sort of um how did you get your start and uh, how you know how did you ever have a feeling that you wanted to end up where you are now you know i've done a a little edX talk and and they asked me that same question and i right. said well it all started with a sperm <laughs> you know, so if we go all the way back, right? Yeah. <laughs> it uh that's where it all started. So um, uh, you know, moving at a little bit quicker pace, I went to college, got a degree in electrical engineering. There weren't any jobs available when I graduated, so I followed a sort of random path, started one startup and wrote a bunch of books, and then started How Stuff Works as a complete hobby slash lark. And it happened to find an audience, did that for 12 years, and sold it It sold to uh, Discovery Channel. And uh, that was a, a very successful you know, endeavor. And then um, today I teach college uh, students about entrepreneurship, how to start startup companies at NC State, and it's awesome. Best gig I've ever had. Uh, I, I just want to try and clear something up. On, on your Wikipedia page, it says that you sold you sold the uh, How Stuff Works for a million dollars. 
But then something else I, I watched said that you sold it for $250 million. Right. What, it, what uh, it did <laughs> say that. Yeah. Well, the, the website sold the Discovery Channel for $250 million. And oh. it was a, that was a very interesting experience. Uh, we could, we could talk for a long time about that, except it's kind of old news. So, so was, was it interesting in the fact that you were getting $250 million or was it interesting because it was a, a, a weird sort of giving over of your sort of intellectual child? <laughs> the, it's, it's interesting because in, in, in giving over your intellectual child, you get to meet a whole bunch of new people and they have completely different perspectives on things and different goals. And when we were purchased there were about 200 employees in the company and a couple years later almost all of them were gone and uh and the whole track of the thing was changed and if you look at um you know steve wozniak might have some perspectives on this going back a little bit further the guy who did drop cam uh they sold for 550 million and he i forget his exact words but he really regrets having sold the thing uh so it's sort of a it's just the way it is when you take in money from investors you're signing up to do a exit like that right. and in the process you do lose your intellectual child but then you go start other ones that's sort of the idea and i suppose that has allowed you to to start something else with uh, a lot more um ambition well that's a good uh a good segue right uh, a lot of people who who do the startup thing uh, get burned out or run out of gas or just want to relax or uh, they retire. There's lots of different paths. You can go headlong into another one, and and people do do that and do that successfully in many cases. I decided to go back to teaching and uh, teach you know, college classes, and that is a much more relaxed lifestyle and a form of retirement, really, you know, kind of pleasant and exciting at the same time. So, so getting a regular job, well, it's not a regular job, but, co- you know, compared to some yeah. people, that's a pretty regular job, isn't it? That's an interesting thing that you think that's a form of retirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get to work with about 100 college seniors who all want to start startup companies and have the opportunity to do that. And so I'm in the same game, right? But I'm in a different role, more of a mentor and a facilitator. And do you feel that keeps you sharp and, and, and keeps your toes in the water? It does that. Um, and it also puts me in touch with, like students often have a ton of energy and a lot of creativity. And they haven't been turned cynical by the world yet, necessarily. Although, I don't know. The current state of things could turn people cynical pretty young. Uh, but often, they, they, haven't, uh, they haven't lost that just innocence, whatever word you want to use for it. I right? I'm hesitant to use the words naive. Yeah. Um, but there's probably a strain of that in there, isn't there? The, that. It's a very powerful thing, actually. If you're <laughs> like, 
you know, when I started some of my stuff, I had no idea what I was getting into. And so that naivete can sometimes be an asset. Right. Because yeah. it, it removes fear. Like you don't know to be afraid. And so you aren't. And you're probably not cool. jaded at that point and looking for someone who's going to, you know, um, screw you over or something. You know, you're probably a lot more um, going over a much more open mind, I imagine. Right. Open to possibilities, willing to talk to anybody, um, try new things. You know, there's this funny thing about YouTube. When YouTube started, there, there, I knew a thousand people who could have started YouTube. In the startup community, or I have a degree in computer science in the computer science realm, but all of them were were pruning that tree because they were thinking, well, how would you possibly afford the bandwidth cost? Or you would need 10,000 servers. There's no way you could do it. Or, you know, and so you had to have a certain naivete to just say, well, let's just try it. Let's see what happens. And uh, and so if you don't think about all the details, you you can jump. How often does sort of ballsiness um, triumph over... Um sort of, you know, strategic planning and uh, chess? I think more often than we would like to believe. <laughs> so the guy who invented Alexa, do, like in Britain, do you have Alexa? Is yes. it a thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank God I don't have it now because it would be going off if you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's true. We've we've summoned it. So uh, <laughs> the... the the guy who invented it is named Igor. He lives in Raleigh, where I am. Mm. And he spoke to class last week. And he was talking about just the incredibly random path that he took from the idea and all the rejection he had to face because people thought he was crazy. Like, no one would let you put a random microphone in their house that can listen to everything you say and then you're just going to talk into space when you want a question answered. Like people just did not think that was a thing. Right. And he, it took him a long, long time and a number of serendipitous events. You know, he was pretty upfront about this where stuff just happens and it, you know, it's, it's completely random or at least it looks completely random meeting people, being at the right event, Somebody opens a door for you, you know, introductions, just all these things that can happen. And if any one of them um, hadn't happened, it would have been a problem. If you read Phil Knight's book on uh, Nike mm. called Shoe Dog, <laughs> Nike could have gone out of business a hundred times. Shoe, it just dog. Is shoe Dog. It's a fantastic book. Oh my God. That's great, man. He just goes through here's how I started. You know, I got out of college and I hated my degree and I never wanted to do, he was an accountant. I never want to do accounting. So here's my path from not being an accountant to being a billionaire. And he, he really, he could have gone out of business a hundred times. It's so amazing. The twists and turns and crazy. Yeah. Do you, um, do you follow Nike's shoe designs? Are you into the, into the fashion? I, uh, am sort of the opposite of that. I'm more of, in in the United States, there's a line of thrift shops called Goodwill, yeah. and uh, I'm more of a Goodwill <laughs> or a Costco shopper. But 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 I am fascinated with the sneakerati or whatever the people who 
our training sneakers for ten thousand dollars. Yeah, I, is- I got a friend who wears two thousand uh, dollar pound Jordans to around the street, and people yep. go, "You know, they're worth like two thousand pounds." And he's like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, I know, but I want to wear them. I want to wear them exactly. I like them. They're you, they're utilitarian. <laughs> yeah, and right. So uh, it is a cool subculture. Yeah." But- you know, that people will pay that much. Well, I was going to ask you if you saw the latest um, Grateful Dead collaboration Nike shoe. No, I have not. Oh, they are horrible. <laughs> they are so horrible. <laughs> Do you, are you familiar with the Dead? I'm sure you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know the little dancing bears they've got? Yeah. Well, the shoes are essentially like little green and yellow furry bears. <laughs> they are fucking... Awful. <laughs> yeah, so they'll be worth $10,000 one day. Yeah, yeah, they're probably already worth double what they were retailing for. I don't like them. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm a dead purist, do you know what I mean? But, um, nice. Uh, yeah, so have you got any any um, students that you're working with at the moment who have a particularly um, – I, I guess you come home and you go, oh, my God, I'm surrounded by these upstarts. <laughs> And some of them have to have to keep you up at night a little bit with excitement and uh, possibility, right? Right. I can tell you uh, right now, my class is in the middle of ideation. So they come up with hundreds of ideas and then narrow them down. And they haven't selected their ideas yet. But I can tell you one from last year that uh, is really fun. They decided they were going to rapidly age whiskey. Company's called Ava. Right. And so traditional whiskey, you make uh, a beer and you distill the alcohol off, and, and we would call that moonshine or white liquor in the United States, just alcohol and water, essentially. And then you put it in a barrel for three or five or 10 years, and it becomes whiskey in the barrel. It gets that color and the flavors. Their technology will do that in a week instead of three or five years by uh, essentially by shredding the barrel and putting the alcohol in it and then applying a bunch of physical processes to it, acoustics or temperature changes or whatever, to move the whiskey in and out of the wood really quickly. And a week later, you have ready-to-go whiskey. And, and companies are using it and they're selling that whiskey and they really like it because they don't have to wait three or five years to get the product out. So when you say acoustics, do you mean, um, how, how, how do you mean? One process is uh, applying ultrasound. That's what I was, that's the word I was reaching yeah. for. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So is that the same sort of process? I've seen people on YouTube who've taken um, old lighters or, or things that made of metal that have gone incredibly dirty, grimy and rusty. Mm. And they've applied some sort of, uh, um, powder to it, some sort of chemical, and they put it in an ultrasound like bathing right. thing, and it sort of just sort of vibrates all the crap off of it in time. Is that sort of the same principle? Right, and that's exactly it. It's just super high frequency vibrations that that scrub it. Really, you know, just you can use it on jewelry. Uh, that's a real common thing. It, anything uh, that you is especially if it's really intricate. So you can't like hit it with a toothbrush or something like that. Right, you, right. you ultrasound is great. Um, and can they can they market that as a twelve year old whiskey because it's had the <laughs> it's had the life experience of a twelve year old whiskey? 
No, there are lots of rules around what you're allowed to say on the label of a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> so, right. Uh, you have to stay, you know, in parameters, but right. you can make, you can do really experimental stuff that you wouldn't necessarily do if you had to wait five years for it. You know, right. you, it's just cool that you can, you can just throw it all in this machine and a week later you're, you have a drinkable new brand of whiskey. Uh, okay. Well, that sounds really um, inventive. What else have you come across in your time? Oh man, the the range is really wide. So we had a team that invented a a system that can detect date rape drugs in drinks. We had a team that built a whole electric car. Uh, there's a there's actually a British company called Ariel that makes a car called the Ariel Atom, right. which is a super lightweight, like uh, minimalist sports car. It's just an exoskeleton. You're riding out in the wind, and uh, so it's an exoskeleton and an engine, giving it a super high uh, power-to-weight ratio, and so it can accelerate and move really quickly. So this team took that idea and just did it as an electric powertrain rather than gas and did the whole thing in two semesters, which is amazing, you know, right? You start with nothing, and you have a car at the end of it. It's like, oh, my God, how did you do that? But they were super motivated. Uh, we've had, you know, people have created robotic bartenders, uh, you know, different ways to think of sleeping bags. I mean, it's all over the map. We, they can do almost anything they want in the class, any product. Sounds like the most inspiring environment. It is. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, both on the teaching and on the, you know, studying, uh, points of view. So I guess as you've... As you've mentioned electric cars, this might be a good a good time to segue into. Do you, do you think you've got any future Elon Musk type characters in your uh, stead? Mm. Well, let me first say that I'm a gigantic fan of Elon Musk. I would not say I'm a fanboy. I right. haven't gone you know fully uh, ludicrous on it, but I really admire what he's been able to accomplish. And the the size of his vision, like he is able to think of things and then move toward them, like things we would have considered preposterous or impossible ten years ago yeah. are now actually happening. I mean, it's a, the the first version of his fully self driving car is supposed to be out next month. This would be a beta version of it, but not just you know driving down a highway, but uh, they're proposing that they have solved the whole problem, that the car can drive itself. And uh, if that's true, that's unbelievable, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, amazing. And he's been planning that for 10 years or 15 or something. Just so many things. And why do you think he is so incredible? Is it? I mean, he does have a great <laughs> mind. Is it his mind or is it? Is it his money? Or is it both? Is he that perfect wow. storm of mind and money? Well, we've seen this happen before, right? It, it's not super common, but it has happened. So Thomas Edison was one of these people. Uh, I, Bill Gates is really one of these people. We could argue Jeff Bezos, just because of the breadth of Amazon. Like, mm. you know, they started as a bookseller, but then they did this and this and this and this and this and this. And that... 
I think the thing about all of them is that they're they do have big ideas and then they break them down into a set of steps to make them happen. And then they are relentless executors. Like they will find ways to get stuff done. And, you know, there was that period where Elon was sleeping in the factory, right? Mm, because yeah, I heard about that. He, he had deadlines he had to hit and they weren't going to get hit. And he just gave it, his entire concentration, which is, you know, further, well, just that willingness to be right there in the front lines with everybody and, you know, and offering solutions and having the, uh, <laughs> like, that's an ask. I don't even know. You're, you're asking a great question. I'm not sure I'm equipped right. as a psychologist to answer it. <laughs> oh my God. I, that's why I'm a fan. Do you think it's time management is a big factor in uh, in that? I don't know because you see him. There are things he does that make no sense. It's like there's two of him, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's like he's got one one that sleeps in the factory, and one that goes and does Joe Rogan and and smokes right? slips with him and. Then there's one that tweets. <laughs> That's there's at least six or seven because he's got multiple companies too. Right. And he's got five children. And he's got a new, you know, wife and a new kid. And 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 it's like, oh my God, how in the world? How maybe he's an alien. Like maybe that's the answer. Maybe but, maybe these rockets are him just trying to get home. <laughs> maybe that's like I could I could buy into that. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Um so <laughs> what, what is it about him you think is is really, really incredible? What's the one thing that you think, God, if I could take that aspect of of you, Mr. Musk, and steal it for my own uh being, what what would you what would you take? Maybe I would start answering that by saying there was a, a day when they launched the Falcon Heavy which is, it's got a core rocket and then two side rockets. And the two side rockets came back down and landed in unison. Yeah, I saw that. On separate, on two separate launch pads, or you know, landing pads right next to each other. No one, you know, like go back 10 years, no one would have ever believed that that was going to happen. And yet it did. And I think the core went out and landed on a robotic ship that was going to catch it out in the ocean because it went a lot further. Right. You know, it couldn't land on land. But I think, God, I can't remember if it, if it stuck that landing or if it missed. But it was really close. But you think, how in the world did you conceive of something that would have been considered impossible and then you organized all the people who were going to build that technology. And then you built it to such a degree that it actually worked. And, it's, and now it's just flying like it's everyday thing, practically. That, I don't even know how to describe what's going on there. It's just an amazing level of professionalism and, and brilliance and organization. Sure. Yeah. Right, it's it's nerve. It's amazing. Do you think that was like you know it was sort of you know a bit of a PR stunt? You think they sat around and they went the value of catching this shot 
for our stock market value, our investors, is almost priceless. Maybe. Is there Because he plays the game, right? He does play well, the game. Yeah, he definitely does that on the Tesla side. Like, he could have just designed an electric car, but no, I want it to be an electric car that's the fastest car in the world at, you know, a thousand horsepower electric car. He, that wasn't necessary, but, <laughs> you know, but he did it. And if you ever get in like a Model S that's fully tricked out, it's got ride height adjustments. And I, I mean, there was a period of time when they were going to put rocket boosters on him and all kinds. That to me is, is showmanship like it's well yes we could make a boring electric car but why would we want to do that let's make an electric car that just blows everybody else away and get the huge publicity out of that the only time i've been in a tesla was in a showroom in uh. in london and basically i was in there and i was just sort of like doing playing the game with the girl <laughs> who was doing the thing and i was trying to i was trying to tune into the radio to catch my band <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't going to buy the car at all. I was just trying to catch our little radio slot, and then I was going to go. She was all like, "Oh, do you want to have this and that?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm just trying, <laughs> trying to make this thing work." Oh, I've yeah. been in a Tesla. I didn't get to hear it either. But there we go. I digress. <laughs> um, so, talking of uh, limitless minds, potential people who don't have—I guess he doesn't have that inner saboteur sort of vibe going on. There's, not, there's probably not a voice in his head that goes, nah, you can't do that. I would imagine not. Yeah. Uh, and it's probably instead a whole cheering section. Right. Right? Like, <laughs> maybe. But then he makes it happen. That's right. It's not always on the exact timescale he predicts, but it does happen. And that is, that is just what's so startling. And then someone uh, like you comes along and writes a book about one – uh, something he wants to do and you're uh, very real uh, about it aren't you well so he he i mean one of the best days of my life was the day he announced that uh that he was going to send a million people to mars like right. i there's a little tedx event on saturday and i did a talk for that event a talk right because now in covid we can't have tedx events we have to pre-record them and blah 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 but it's a eight minute talk on let's say he does send a million people to mars what is that going to be like once you land he's got the whole let's get them there part figured out the rockets and the in-orbit refueling and the capsules and all the orbital mechanics, he can get the people there, but then they land, these million people land on this other planet for the first time, and then what? That's that's where I started writing, was, okay, what do we want the, the socio-political economic system of the Mars experience to look like? Do we want it to look like Earth, which kind of sucks, if you're <laughs> honest about it, for, I mean, you and I, and probably everybody listening to this, we all live on the, you know, inside the good bubble, but there's billions of people who are not inside that bubble if we're, you know, honest and forthright about it. And and Earth really kind of sucks. And so do we want to transplant that dysfunction to Mars or do we want to create something better? 
And what would that look like? And how would we decide like what is going to happen on Mars? And there's a thousand questions. We could just, we could just sit here, right. you and I, for four hours and just ask questions. That's what I was scared of. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. I haven't got four hours. Um, yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So like, it kind of sounds like you're almost the, the voice in Elon's head that doesn't exist. Mm. you've gone hang on let's be real about this usually that's the voice i think he goes rubbish let's carry on i don't know that it's it's that well i i think it's it's more like okay you've gotten us there now that is just the very very beginning what is the rest of the story like where does it go from there and uh, and let me just give you a simple example. Are there going to be guns on Mars or not? Like that, someone has to make that decision. Right. Right. And, and or are there a few guns, you know, and, and police officers get those guns and normal people don't, or there's no guns. We've got enough issues with police and guns. We've got enough of that going on. Right. It, uh, yeah. It's just that. And then there's like dogs and cats. Are there going to be dogs and cats for pets on Mars right. or not? Right. <laughs> how, how do you, or meat? Is there going to be meat on Mars? We could go forever. Right. But, but you know, like on planet earth right now, there's a billion people who live in slums. So that's about a seventh of us. And that number is growing. And it'll one by 2050. It's thought that maybe half of us are living in slums. Because we've all moved to cities, but cities don't have the housing. And so we build these slums and there we are. Well, do we want half of the people on Mars living in slums? And, you know, the answer to that is probably not. That would be a very poor outcome. (laughs) But how are we going to change it so it doesn't happen that way? What would the system look like? That, to me, is a really interesting creative space to work in. I guess the fascinating bit is is how much of our own history are we going to... Learn from and not transplant or transport, you know, onto Mars. You know, it's, yes. it's the chance to start again. Really, it's it, yeah, it's the, it's the chance. It's a clean slate, isn't it? Yes, it is. Just without waterfalls and mountains and lovely <laughs> shit like that. Buffalo. It's completely blank. It's just rocks and <laughs> sand and some ice. That's all you got. Uh, and so the political side, like I don't know about. England, but the United States is not looking really great on the political side right now. Do we want that kind of stuff on Mars? The economic <laughs> side, <laughs> the you know all the social dynamic stuff. The what is there one language or a hundred? Is like so many things to think about. And does Mars have sovereignty? <laughs> Good question, right? Or is Mission Control making all the decisions? Right and. And you would think they would have to make all their own stuff because of the six-month transit time. And But when when you actually dig down into that, you say, oh, well, okay, we need to make aluminum foil on Mars, like something totally mundane, like aluminum foil. That's a problem. It's like it's not trivial to make aluminum foil. It's a big deal. Right. <laughs> so never mind computer chips and automobiles and all the other stuff, but like it – a million people might not be enough to do a modern society. You might need more just to cover all the bases of the aluminum foil maker and the car makers and the 
chip makers and the phone makers, you might need more than a million. Right. Yeah, of course. If you put a million people there, you need uh, things going to break. Right. And, and you have stolen. to. <laughs> and you don't want to wait six months for you know Amazon Prime to arrive. It's, <laughs> it's not going to work that way. What is it uh, about the restarting again on Mars that you find so fascinating and attractive? Because you you appear to be a man that has everything in terms of the um, material and success in life. Okay. So what, what is it that's captured your imagination about that? All right. So let me tell you a small story. Okay. Maybe two or three years ago, I decided to write a book about entrepreneurship that was going to get used in my class. I, I essentially wanted to write a, a textbook and it was called, or it is called, it's called Machine That Makes Money. And you can go to machinethatmakesmoney.com and you can see my collected thoughts about being an entrepreneur and talking to investors and how do you ideate and all that stuff. That's, But as I was writing that, I was compelled to write the opposite book, which was like, that's all capitalism is great. Here's how you can make the most of it. But I wrote another book at the same time called Replace Capitalism. And it's at replacecapitalism.com. And that's the book about the billion people living in slums. And how do you, how do you make it? How do you build a society, a global society, so that you don't have people living in slums because capitalism can create entrepreneurs, but it also creates slums. Like in the United States, we can have intense poverty. We have massive student debt. We have medical bankruptcies. You guys have a much better medical system than we do. For now. Uh, yes, right. For now. <laughs> That's a good point. And, uh, and so how do you create a system that, has those advantages of capitalism, which, you know, the the part where you get iPhones and rocket ships and electric Teslas and all that stuff, that's the good side. But the fact is that 7 billion people out of 7.7 will never have an iPhone. Like they can't possibly afford it. And so how do you have everybody benefiting from this thing rather than, you know, a, a select few that they get to experience all this goodness. And, uh, and that's what, where the desire for a reset comes from. Create a new system that is not carrying all this baggage and punishing all these people who didn't happen to be born in the right country to the right parents, whatever. You really play a lottery when you're born. Mm. It's kind of uncomfortable. So are you signing up to go to Mars? Uh, that's a good question. I probably would not be the person that wants to go to Mars. I would rather be on Earth trying to make it. You know, this goes into that the doomsday book that's supposed to come out next month. Um, I would like to solve some of the problems here before they destroy us. Yeah. The You know, the climate side. And when you say climate change, that breaks into like eight different big problems. And then the the whole nuclear proliferation side. And, you know, there's so many aspects that we could fix here on earth that I might be inclined to stay here and work that side of the problem. And what, what kind of people do you envision signing up to go to Mars? 
because you're, we're gonna we're gonna need an array of now. This is an interesting thing. Is you're gonna need different expertise? Yes. Or we obviously want different races. We want different um, uh, orientations of all kinds. We want everyone to be represented in this new world of Mars. Yes. Psychologically, how how are you getting the pick of the bunch? Because some people who are going to sign up to go to Mars are going to go there because they're insane or they've got nothing here. They've got nothing. Right. And then that might mean they've got nothing to offer as well. Or, it's a good... Yeah. So how do you... I mean, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable question. It is. So you could just run a lottery. Right. Right? You just run a worldwide lottery. Everybody gets a ticket. If you get... If your number comes up, you can say yes or no, like, yes, I do want to go or no, I'd rather right. stay on earth. But we just pick a million people at random and we take what we get. Uh, and that, that could be brilliant or it could be a complete disaster because we do need, well, well, let me back up and just say the other alternative is to do it like a space mission where you hand pick every single person in their slots and you train them and you, you know, you give them all the expertise they need and then they go and execute a mission. Mm. And the mission is to build a society on Mars. That's the other way to do it. And I think our inclination would be to do it that way. You know, sort of the, the closest we have to that is maybe an aircraft carrier. Right. It could have 6,000 people on it. They're all highly organized to make that little city work. And to do its mission and be effective and uh, be able to handle all kinds of stress and problems and explosions and everything like that. That probably is the way we end up going, but that is uh, very different from creating a civilization, you know, like just dealing with the human, the human thing as it is, which is all over the map. All right. So it just it's so it's the be well it's the beginning of civilization is that it poses so many <laughs> seemingly you know insurmountable obstacles or questions like disease and and health in space right. you know how many will make it to there on a six month journey how many are dying are we taking reserves do you know I mean like what it's just like money what's money's role on Mars. Is it we do we go barter system? Is it just delivered? Is it free? Is it subsidized by planet Earth? By Amazon, is it sponsored by Amazon? <laughs> you know, it's um where do you be this like, is the rabbit hole? Right. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so interesting to think yeah. of a blank sheet of paper and how much how much better it could theoretically be if we could get rid of a lot of the dysfunction. So Again, I feel that I have to ask all these different questions, or I will go down a rabbit hole of just sort of, obviously because of COVID, just disease and stuff like that. But yeah. what do we do for scenery when we're there? What's the architecture looking like? Is it typical Star Trek stuff? Is it more what you'd consider to be a, 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 a an Earth-like structure? What's going on on Mars? Right. What are you looking at? Just rocks all the time? I don't know if we can handle that after six months. <laughs> Elon and company actually put out uh, kind of a promo image of what their view of the <laughs> of the 
civilization would look like. And it's like a thousand small glass bubble pods. Some of them yeah, grow I think food. I saw that. Yes, that uh, that is interesting because that is one approach and it has advantages and disadvantages. The other, you know, you can do it with great big bubbles, you know, 10 miles of bubble that has an enormous uh, cityscape inside of it that looks very much like Earth, say. That's another thing. Uh, there's good arguments for putting the whole mess underground. The The radiation problem on Mars is... Uh, significant and so is the temperature problem and shoving the whole thing underground solves both of those but then the scenery problem gets even worse <laughs> right and so yeah, there you uh you know you're making big big underground parks that are lit as though it was sunlight on earth and that way we get enough you know solar radiation to to be healthy and enough light to be healthy. And we have, there's a very strong indicator that we need to be in nature right. periodically in order to be healthy mentally. And, you know, having, for example, the equivalent of Central Park, I don't know what the equivalent of that in Britain is, but maybe Hyde Park in London. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, giant forests and so on on Mars, just so that people can can be in nature as we think of nature from our evolutionary standpoint. Uh -huh. I mean, NASA went even more granular than Elon did and had people living in little huts, uh, you know, in, individually, and they would put on their spacesuits to go outside. And yeah. uh, it, it's all over the map. No one, it's, it's still in its infancy. No one knows. And, and what happens once multi-generations get involved? Does your kid have a, a some sort of galactic passport? <laughs> you know, you get those people that got dual passports. Do you know what I mean? You know, well, my mum's from Earth and my dad's from Mars, so I've got, <laughs> I got dual citizenship. You know? All about, like, students, they go on a gap year and they go to Earth and they go, why the hell did you move to Mars? I'm staying here. I've got me a job and a girlfriend and everything. You know what happens then if the kid grows up and he goes, why? I don't want to be here anymore. This is right. really shit. I'm going where there's, <laughs> there's waterfalls and these things with lions and dragonflies and things. Stuff. The, <laughs> the funny thing about Mars is the gravity difference. It's about half of Earth's gravity. So Arthur C. Clarke wrote about this a little bit, about how if you were born, say, on the moon, and then you came back to Earth, the gravity is like sucking the life out of you because you're not used to it. And like you go to Africa and it's so hot and it's so smelly and it's so close, you know, and you like totally freak out. You can't even imagine wanting to be on Earth because on the moon, you're living in this low gravity, really easy environment. The temperature is always the same. The, and it's perfect, you know, and it's no smells. It, it's just a much more sanitized experience. And Earth just seems incredibly gritty and dirty and filled with bacteria and gross, right? Mm. Dogs pooping on the sidewalk. It's, just, you know, all this stuff. So it could go both ways. It, you know, Earth might be awesome or it might be like, yuck, I don't want to deal with all this. Right. 
And, uh, and what happens if Mars establishes itself to such a degree that it declares itself, like we said, a sovereign nation? Right. And then, there, and then we've got some sort of space war going on. That's inevitable. <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen, isn't it? Right. Just look at human history. Right. It happens every time. Every so. single bloody time. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that will save us is artificial intelligence. That is uh, the only, the yeah. only thing. When it puts us into like neat little pens and uh, pats us on the head, I, something maybe it puts us in virtual environments that are really cool. You know, right. it just takes our brains and connects them into a the ultimate video game, and you can experience. Have you seen the Black Mirror? I have certain episodes of it. I haven't seen yeah. the whole series. Well, there's one episode where they're they're in a like an old people's home, like a retirement home. And what they would do every night is they got this little earpiece thing, and they plug it in, and they go to this sort of like simulated server, I guess, where they're all in their yeah. 20s, and they all have like little micro-romantic relationships, and it all revolves <laughs> around a, like a nightclub, and it's a Friday night. And then they have the option at the end of their life to, to for their essence to be put into this digital heaven, essentially, which is a, looks like a, a warehouse full of servers, and, and 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 on the US, let's say it's a USB slot. It may not be, but um, it'll have your your name and you know your birth and your death date in it, like a little like a little unit, like a like a tombstone. Right. And that's it. You're you're plugged into this sort of uh, heaven matrix where you you live for eternity as your you know your peak self. Your hairline's great. You know the dad bod's not there. You know what I mean? That would be nice. I wouldn't mind a little cosmetic surgery to fix a few <laughs> things as well, if we're going to go that far. Right. <laughs> so, so, so do you think they could just go, this is the best, uh, I don't know why I'm talking like a robot, this is the, <laughs> <laughs> this is the best option for the humans. You know what I mean? <laughs> 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 you just put the you know, little, I don't know. Well, you're, you're the expert. So, yeah, the, well, the path is, that we invent conscious computers and then they rapidly become super intelligent. Right. Way, like so intelligent that, that we look like insects compared to their intelligence. And, and then they do like, we look like a whole bunch of little ants from their perspective with not a lot of uh, intelligence going on. And and then you ask, well, what would they do with us? Mm. Would they, you know, melt us with magnifying glasses, or would they think, well, what's the most compassionate thing we can do with these people that created us? Mm. And I, I I tend to think in that direction because I think not only will they be super intelligent, but they'll be super ethical as well because the two things often go hand in hand. And so they decide they want to give us the best thing possible and it, it could be that you end up in this private universe that is perfectly optimized for your personality yeah and but what, it doesn't seem to me like binary code or maybe they'd be at a quantum level at this at this um point we don't know it doesn't seem to me like there's an awful lot of room for compassion there because that involves um i don't know involves so much more than so you don't think they'd see the world in black and white? I think that if you have become conscious, mm. a computer has become conscious, so it it knows that it's an I, 
Mm. You know, I exist. So it's become conscious, but then it's advanced and become super intelligent or super conscious that hand in hand with that, just like humanity tends to develop a system of laws and ethics and morality, they would do that same process. They would come to conclusions about what is fairness and what is goodness and what is compassion. And they would define all of that. And then they would execute on that as best they can, rather than just destroying the world, right? Which is what is usually, you know, predicted, portrayed. Um, yes. Do you think that they would, to, to, in order to do that, they would have to gain an understanding of of what consciousness is itself, and that we possess that? <sighs> yeah, I mean, you're asking the. I feel that's the only way they would respect us. As if they right. realize, like when we see each other, we understand that there's a there's something precious within each other. That there's a there's a life, and it's not ours to you know. It's like beyond us, isn't it? Right. Well, that's the same question you get. Like, say, an advanced alien species lands. Right. Right. They they finally arrive from you know the Zebulon galaxy or wherever they come from, and uh, and their ship is as as big as a continent and you know, they obviously are way, 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 way ahead of us. What would their process be uh, to learn about humanity? And you would think that they would have to just come down and start talking to a lot of humans. And the unfortunate part about that is that uh, we're all over the map, right? <laughs> there's there's some people, you know, who who are super ethical and there's other people who want to rape pillage and blunder if they had a chance and everything in between. Mm. So I don't know what they would make if they, if they actually interviewed say a million random people, they would get some averages, but they would also get these extremes that would possibly be really unsettling to them in terms of, of what they see Just you know, the whole criminal mind part of it, it that just, it seems impossible, and yet there are serial killers, and they think it's cool. You know, they're doing it for a reason, and and it all makes sense to them. Right. I don't know. We there's a new word. It's neurotypical. Yes. You don't talk about normal people anymore. You talk about neurotypical people. Yes. Yeah. I have um, I have ADHD, so I don't think okay. I, I don't think I fall into what's known as neurotypical. Really? How interesting. Uh, what? So I think that's that's kind of cool. I think it's to do with uh, with ADHD. I think there's a um, there's a uh, it's a chemical thing. So to chemical balances, adrenaline, and and the other things. I don't really know. I should know, but the other chemicals that help you to um, concentrate and in the brain needing uh, like I always need stimulus all the time. I always need, I'm a drummer and stuff, so I need to tap in or like you know doing something. It's just like my if my brain isn't occupied on like every sensory level, it's just very sort of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> that could be both cool and uh, distracting. Yeah, well, distracting is the word. Yes. Okay. Mm. But but I, you know I distract myself with with things I like. Yeah. Like podcasts. <laughs> well, how? How did you get into drumming, for example? How did you discover it? Uh, well, well, I was um, I was an army cadet, which I think in the states means something different. 
It's a bit like okay. over here, like a cadet, I think, in the States, like you're a real in the real military, or you're in a bit mm. more of a military school or something. This in, in, in England is a little bit more like, um, you know, like uh, this, um, what do you guys have? The, you have the Girl Guides and you have the... Um, oh, Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts. It's a bit more like that, but with a military... Mm-hmm. It's military centric. So, um, and they had a uh, like a band uh, called the Silver Bugles. And essentially, I turned up and I joined up. And on band night, they just handed me a drum, like, this is what you're going to learn. <laughs> and that, that was it. So, I had this little snare drum and I was doing all these like sick things, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I found a drum kit at school and I could, you know, kind of just learn around <laughs> the snare drum. And I guess yeah. something about it spoke to me because it was it was kind of therapeutic because I I, I guess I was mm. not like a super angry kid, but I definitely had the teenage angst going on. Do you know what I mean, like you know, I was into Nirvana and you know metal mm. and Black Sabbath and things like that. Just you know, and so I just the drums just feel like a really good outlet for all of that that energy. It just really? comes out, and and I notice it like I'm so much calmer when I'm drumming more often in life generally and then when I'm not during lockdown I could definitely feel moments where it was like you know I couldn't drum yeah my drum kit lives at my guitarist house and I was like you know like but now I can drum a bit more often now because lockdown is eased slightly so I feel a bit more zen but um, I understand it, it is it's music is a total outlet yeah that is because you can kind of lose yourself in it uh, yeah and like I have a son I have two teenage sons. They're freshmen in college. One, his outlet is the guitar. Uh-huh. And the other, his outlet is basketball on the driveway. It's like they're completely different. Right. Uh, but they each have their, I need to not think about the world right now. I need to, you know, I need to pull back. And yeah. music is it for one, for sure. That's totally healthy, I think. So what's your uh, what, what kind of music are you into? What's your uh, jam? I uh, I almost use writing like people use alcohol. Uh, right. That sort of I can get into a zone when I'm writing and push all the worry and anxiety and problems. They just fall away. Right. And uh, that is. Uh, that or bike, like bike riding. I like right. to just get on a bike and pedal it. But either of those, I can only go so far on the bike. I can write, yeah, for in like until I collapse, kind of thing. What how, What do you think your life would be like if you didn't have writing? Uh, I don't know because I I'm a compulsive writer. I write every single day. If like you were talking about drumming. Yeah. If I don't write, I am like I am very not who I want to be. Right. And uh and I can't imagine you know not writing. It's I don't know what it would be like. I would be a different person for sure. But it is it's like the only thing where I get totally into a zone and time can pass without me noticing time passing and yeah. And I don't feel like an idiot. I, yeah. I don't know. I feel that's, like an idiot a lot of the time. And that's, so. 
that sounds a lot like uh, what we call hyperfocus. Okay. Which is, uh, so for, for, for people with ADHD, non-neurotypical people, let's say, in general, there's a, you get into a thing and you go down that rabbit hole, you can become completely consumed by this subject that you're looking up or this thing that you're collecting or this band that you're looking into and listening to. And it's, it's, it's called a hyper-focus. And you can go, like, I, I expect you can go a day without eating if you're on a roll. Oh, yeah. And I, you get to I the end of the day. And you're like, I haven't eaten. I what even the hell? Yeah. Does that worry you when that happens or do you feel? Oh, no, that's a blessing. That's like right. the greatest thing ever. <laughs> that's why I say it's like, you know, some people, they can't handle anxiety or stress of life or whatever. And so they start drinking. Mm. That That's not an illogical response because it lets you forget it. Mm. I don't happen to drink for historical reasons, but... Uh, well, and if I did, I'd be a complete alcoholic. So it's fortunate right. that I'm able to hyper-focus, let's use that word, yeah. on, on whatever it is I'm writing about. It is uh, that Whenever that happens, it's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so, so do you feel like maybe you have a bit of an addictive personality in, in the sense that if you like something, you do something, you really like it, you just do it again and again and again until so you've wore it out and there's, you can't derive any more pleasure from it and then you move on to the next thing. Well, I fear that I have an addictive personality right. and therefore I've never used alcohol. Right. And that's because my father had a terrible problem with alcohol and I, I learned everything I needed to learn vicariously. Right. But an extension of that is I've never done any drugs and I don't, I'm, I'm afraid to gamble. Like I've been to Vegas dozens of times, but I've never even played a slot machine because right. you, you read about these people who go nuts, right? Yeah. They they get into it, and so you got a lot to lose. Uh, you do <laughs> exactly. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, how how did your how did your um your dad shape your because uh, that's you're clearly very cautious of things that have an addictive quality to them, aren't you? Yeah, so absolutely. Th- that's that's down to your father, right? It could have gone either way, right? right. You either imitate your parents. Or you become the preacher's daughter and you do the exact opposite of what your parents want you to do. And so my father just had a horrible problem with alcohol. And Mm. my parents were always fighting about it. And it was like, it was just a constant thing. And then he died when I was 15 in a car accident from alcohol. And it's like, well damn, I don't ever want to have anything to do with alcohol. Yeah. Right? Like that's, that was my response to it. I, there's other responses that are all valid, but that was my response is I want to have nothing to do with this chemical. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense. So do you feel like your, your drive and your, um, yeah, so your, your drive and your constant, let's say hyper-focus in, in life is part, do you, do you think that's partly kind of trying to, get as far away from, from, do you think, well, I could be that or I could do this. And if you just stay focused and you keep going, you keep going, you keep working, 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 writing, 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 there will be no time to sort of become your father. (laughs) No, that's an excellent question. I, I do think that the writing thing is sort of like an addiction. Mm. It happens to be, 
beneficial rather than destructive. Like you get a product out of writing. Right. It's not always a good product, right? But you often get a useful product out of writing, which is the opposite of alcohol. You usually get, you know, a problem out of alcohol. So there's that aspect. The uh, the other thing is I... Uh, uh, well, let's not. Uh, well, like Elon, let's just take Elon Musk since we've been talking about him. Yeah, he's accomplished so much more, mm-hmm. right? In, in, in embarrassingly more. It, it's not like he's accomplished a little more. I mean, he's accomplished so much stuff, and and I fully feel or grasp how insignificant I am compared. <laughs> and so, uh, and that is motivating. Like, I, why can't I accomplish that many cool things? Right. I, and that, I don't know if that's healthy or unhealthy, but that is definitely a way to look at it. He has, he's, he's gotten more out of his life experience somehow. Right. Right. (laughs) But then, but then that's the thing. So you're, you're here talking about Elon Musk and the president. Right. And, and, and I'm sat here, right. I work in a shop and I'm talking to you and you're worth $250 million, right? So well, the, that's the, 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 All right. But, okay. All right. Details, details, Marshall. Uh, but, but you know what I'm saying? So, so there's, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm going, wow, this guy's done pretty good for himself and I'm feeling pretty lucky. I'm getting to talk to you and be inspired okay. by you. And then you're looking at, at Elon and you're going, oh, how are you? <laughs> it's funny, right? Right. There's always... And and Elon's probably looking at somebody else. You know? yeah. like, like, Who's he looking at? <laughs> right. He's looking somewhere. Maybe. He's in a oh, telescope trying to find his home planet. Like, come on. Come on. Where are we? Yeah, I think you're over that way. <laughs> the grass is always greener. <laughs> right. <And> so, <laughs> Amazing. When's the book out? I think October 20th. Yeah. It's called the Doomsday Book. And it is... Uh, 25 scenarios in it and how we could forestall them if we were smart enough. Uh, were there more scenarios? Were there 30 or 50 that you had to sort of distill? Or Oh, sure. Uh, you know, every day you read about something else that is unnerving or, un, you know, that that makes you worry. But these are like the 25 that are that could destroy humanity or could destroy an entire city or uh, you know, catastrophic doomsday level things that that can and some will go go wrong. Some of this climate stuff is inevitable unless we really get our act together here. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and when is that out? I, I think October twentieth. It might be a little delayed because of COVID, but right. that's when it's. And where can we find this? Is this because I know you, that you have a history of of releasing books for free via your website, and then there's a Kindle edition. Are you going for the yeah. full, the full uh, hardback, softback, bloody no paperbacks? <laughs> um, yeah, this this book has a real publisher, right? Uh, it's called the publisher is Sterling, and it'll come out in hardback and softback. Yes, and it's uh, it's on Amazon right now for pre order. So, right. it, you know, like most books. It's a it's a real book. Uh, a real book. Opposed, we'll quote that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. 
Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Oh, this has been wonderful. It's and, been a real uh, blast. I, I wish you great good fortune on your podcasting career. Big thank you to Marshall Brain for coming and chatting to me on The Giant Pod. You can check out uh, links to his new book and his other projects in the show note descriptions. Please like, leave a review, subscribe to The Giant Pod if you want. You can follow me on Instagram at Andy underscore S1S. This podcast was produced by the studious Harry Williams. Uh, Make sure you catch us next week on The Giant Pod. Thanks very much.